0: Are you a millennial who's struggling to find more purpose? Do you feel confused when you think about what you're created to do here? Do you waste time on job search engines searching for a better fit? Do you often feel unfulfilled with what you're doing on a day-to-day basis? Well, you don't have to feel that way anymore. Welcome to the Life & Business Coaching for Millennials, a safe space where people from all walks of life can come together to learn, grow, and transform. My name is Jose Miguel Longo, and I'm your host. Life and Business Coaching for Millennials is a place where diversity is celebrated and encouraged, where we can have open, honest conversations about uncovering your purpose in business, feeling more joy in your life, and ultimately finding more happiness and success. I look forward to having meaningful conversations and coaching sessions that will help you explore life, career options, be inspired, Fueled and fulfilled with laughter. It's time to chit chat with Jose Miguel. Let's dive in. Hello, chit chatters, and welcome to another episode of Life and Business Coaching with Jose Miguel. Today, we have a special guest who is someone from my community in Syracuse, New York. Um, This is Tanner Effinger, and I'm so excited to have him here because we're going to have an amazing conversation about not just what he does in Syracuse, New York, but also who he is and what he represents. So this is one of those meaningful conversations that I've been always talking about. Tanner, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us
1: today. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here.
0: So let's get started a little bit with you telling us and the listeners, who is Tanner and what is it that Tanner does so that they get an understanding of how this conversation will go?
1: Well, I am 36 years old. I live in Syracuse, New York. I've been here for about three years. Uh, currently, I own a uh, a theater company, which is, uh, it's already hard to explain this. Actually, what I do is a hard thing. Technically, I'm a theater artist. I'm an actor, an educator, a director, a producer, a writer. Over the past year, I also uh, became a co-owner of a Theater venue space and a, a queer bar called Wunderbar. Three years ago, I started a, non, uh, a nonprofit theater company called Breadcrumbs Productions, and I'm now the artistic director of that. So that's kind of like who I am in a nutshell. And it's hard to say. It's not like I can be like, I'm a, a doctor or I'm a, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> I don't know.
0: That's so amazing. And those are the things that you do, right? Those are the things yeah. that find you as a person or the identity that you have of what it is that you do in your day to day, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I joked when opening Wunderbar, which is the, the queer bar in theater, that this space is um, sort of like a brick and mortar version of, of who I am as a theater artist, uh, as an art creator, um, and as uh, someone who cares passionately about the LGBTQ community. So I guess that's the other thing. I am an activist. I am a community organizer. Uh, I'm a husband. I am a queer man. I am gender nonconforming. I'm a dad of a dog. (laughs) (laughs) We love our doggies. We do. I love my dog. Does that answer the who am I question, I guess?
0: (laughs) We we oftentimes, when we are asked a question, tell us about yourself, we very easily mean the identity of what we do Mm. as opposed to who we are. And you leave the person kind of stumped with like, well, what's the answer to the question? Tell me about yourself kind of thing. Yeah. I think it does. And I think people will will get that. So you're not from Syracuse, right? You're yeah. from Boston. And so you arrived here. Why? What made you come to Syracuse, New York and sure. start this amazing business that you have, but also community that you're part of? And I mean, I I'd have never seen the LGBTQ community in the six and a half, seven and a half years that I've lived in Syracuse come together as much since you kind of came around. Because I don't want to see that the community itself was not existential, but there really wasn't there's other there's there's another gay bar that we know that exists in the community, but it doesn't didn't come together. People weren't always going, it wasn't the most active. Tell us about that. Why did you come?
1: Um, okay. So I'll give you like the down and dirty story of my life. It's gonna take like Ooh. two minutes. Ready? I love
0: it. Go ahead.
1: I was born in Washington State, and I lived there for about six months. And then we moved to Baltimore, California, Utah, Massachusetts, North Carolina, and we ended up, uh, I kind of got some of those mixed around. We ended up staying in Massachusetts for like middle school and high school for me. And then I went to New York City and I was in New York City for five years for college. And then I'm a college dropout. So I dropped out of college, but I went to college for theater to be an actor. And then I was working, trying to be an actor in in New York for another three years. And then I moved to Los Angeles and I lived in LA for six years, trying to be a theater artist, uh, a writer. You know, I worked on screenplays, some movies, did that kind of stuff for a while, did a lot of improv theater. Um, And then I met my now husband. We moved to England together. I lived in Oxford, England for five years. And uh, while he was getting his PhD, we moved to Boston for about nine months until he got a job out here in, uh, well, Hamilton, New York, is where he got his job, but we live in Syracuse. Okay. Uh, So it's like a weird path. You know, to sort of like it's end up... It it's is, a journey. It's a journey. Yeah,
0: yeah. I love that because we all have such different paths of how we got to where we are. Yeah. I think that for people who listen to podcasts and oftentimes are, are looking for a place to connect, sometimes the journey and the idea of where someone comes from really connects to the person. The fact that you were in, you were in theater and you are in theater, I should say, yeah. but that you went to school for that and then you still are successful in doing it and you dropped out of school. That yeah. connects to somebody. So tell us more about Wonder Bar and how have you become this activist community? Because I think at the forefront, I live in Syracuse. I'm not from Syracuse. I've had a journey of how I got to Syracuse. Yeah. Similar to yourself, I came back here because this is where my husband lives. And at the time that we met, we met in Syracuse. I left and then I came back. So I just think that when you think about how the community has come together, it's amazing what you've done. And I really want people to understand that.
1: Gosh, I guess we should, uh, to really like dive into it, I guess it, it gets a little bit deep. I, I'm going to try to give you like Reader's Digest versions of these stories because, you know, we'll be here all day. But when I was living in Los Angeles, uh, Proposition 8 happened in California. I was living in West Hollywood, which is a traditionally, you know, a queer area. And I was working at gay bars since I was 21 years old in New York City and Los Angeles as a cocktail waiter and bartender and, and all of that stuff. So Proposition 8 was when the right for marriage was taken away from same-sex couples in California. So it was a very strange moment because Barack Obama became president. And we were all celebrating out at the bars, like where I was working. I was with this guy I was dating at the time. We're all celebrating. And then all of the news came in about Proposition 8. And suddenly, we weren't allowed to get married anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, not me and the guy I was dating. We weren't going to get married. Trust me, <laughs> yeah. but you know, like queer people, LGBTQ folks. So I suddenly fell into activism. It happened accidentally. I kind of realized that I was a, had a very fortunate family situation in that, like, when I came out, it was like cool, like have a, like enjoy life. It's great. <laughs> like my parents, have, like they love going to pride parades. Like we're fine with all of that. You know, they're great. My younger brother is a, a, a professional drag queen in New York City. Like. Yeah, yeah. so I'm very fortunate. And I thought because I have that privilege, I have responsibility to speak for those who don't have that much of a voice. So I became an activist for a long time. And I organized a march on Washington uh, with many other people, but I was one of the top three, five organizers uh, for the National March on Washington, the National Equality March. Lady Gaga came and spoke and... Uh, yeah, we, we had about a quarter million people come. Uh, it was what Time Magazine said. During all of that stuff is when I quit acting. I didn't like Los Angeles. I didn't like Hollywood I didn't want to do it anymore. I, I thought it was sort of a narcissistic career path, and I started working for AIDS Walk in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. And it was around this time that I met my now husband. So I got into activism and nonprofit work. I uh, still worked on the in the gay bars on the you know the weekends or whatever because it was my community, right? Like mm-hmm. I was an activist. I was working in the gay bars. It was. It was amazing. Uh, There was a lot of sort of like acceptance and freedom and family in in, in those communities for me. And I felt really proud of the work I was doing. I mean, we were organizing marches and rallies and sit-ins and we would meet weekly. And this is when I started announcing my pronouns before sort of like meetings and stuff. Like just this intention and care for LGBTQ people became the center of my identity. And I loved that. Then I met my now husband. It was around this time that I was like becoming disenchanted with living in Los Angeles because I don't really like LA. Sorry. It's like not (laughs) my thing. It's too much, too much sun. I'm like an East Coast boy. Too much sun. Too much sun. So I met him very unexpectedly, fell madly in love. He got an offer quite quickly to get a PhD at Oxford University So, of course, we jumped at that and we moved to Oxford and we lived there for five years. I, you know, while he was getting his degree, I was paying the bills. So that meant I went back to working at restaurants full time. I got a job as a general manager of a restaurant out there, did that for a few years, Uh, really liked it. I, I worked for a wonderful family and... It was a cool, funky place. Like it was an arts gallery, and I, I did performances there. We had improv shows there. We did burlesque shows. Yeah, the owners were super cool. That's called the Jam Factory. So it's in Oxford. Wow. You can check it out. It was an old marmalade factory. We'll put in uh, the
0: in the show notes. So definitely, yeah, it up.
1: And I think that really like taught me. So like working those few years as the general manager of the Jam Factory and then also working as an activist and organizing, I mean, literally thousands of activists, hundreds of thousands of activists to sort of like congregate taught me the skills of community organization and also taught me, I guess, sort of like what I care about.
0: Your passion, what drives you, what motivates you. Yeah, so I'm hearing you say this and I'm like, there's the light bulb. I see the energy in your face when we're talking and for people who are listening probably can't see that, but you can hear it in your voice that this is what you're called to do.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Like my mission is clear and it sounds quite cheesy because I actually believe my mission to be rather self-serving. And I don't think there's a problem with that. I am, I am passionate about the support of queer people. I am passionate about the support of local artists. And I just happen to be both a queer person and a local artist, right? It's sort of like, no, no, I want more resources for people like me. But then of course it extends beyond that because that's when I start to realize that it's not just people like me, it's people like me who also then experience other forms of intersectional discrimination right? Yes. So that's when I start to expand what I do. And that's when I start to become more intentional with my passion. And there are like really important training tools that exist that can help you be really intentional about that. But I have to be honest with myself that Mm -hmm. yes, I am a queer person. Yes, I am gender non-conforming, but I still identify as a cis man. I am white, right? And I have had a lot of privilege in my life. So... I take my passion and I take sort of like all of the skills that I have learned and I then have to like be intentional about like making sure that it is equitably distributed (laughs) to the community I'm trying to help, right? Like it's so deep and complex and weird when I talk about it.
0: You know, I think sometimes when we talk about coaching and people are talking about who they're trying to serve, if you're in that type of business, as opposed to making something, you're serving something... You have to find who your avatar is. And always and almost often, often, almost always, your avatar is you. So when you talk about being this person who is an artist and an activist, but you're also putting that out there to do that, that's so important. You're doing what you're meant to be doing.
1: Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. You know, it's funny. In, in sort of chatting about this beforehand, this idea of like purpose and stuff. And I think I am quite critical of the cheesy. And maybe that's just the sort of theater artist in me, right? Because like I look at the Own stage and I want yeah. I mean it's it's because of my aesthetic, not because there's anything wrong with it, right? I'm like I wanna be I wanna be dark and edgy like with my art. So then I like <laughs> but it's like no actually there's some like really cheesy things about my life that are beautiful. And yeah, owning it is really important. And a cheesy thing that I should embrace is a pair of Tom's shoes that I, I had. I've only owned one pair of Tom's shoes. And they're all, you know, it's a wonderful company. They donate another pair yes, to someone else. Yeah. And I think they're kind of expensive, so I can never really afford one for myself. I'm always sort of like the cheap shoe kind of human. But I did buy a pair once when I, a long time ago. I think I was living in LA. And it had the Gandhi quote on it, you know, be the change you want. To, yes.
0: One of my, what are my uh, favorite quotes.
1: And I love those shoes because Tom shoes are super comfortable and also because they fall apart like, you know, after a year or so of wearing them. I and was you get gonna get see two months. Like, yeah. <laughs> and you get to sort of like see them disintegrate on your feet. Like, this is when I was doing a lot of activism. So like it really motivated me to keep working and to like live and accept myself for who I was as a queer person and mm. accept myself for my desires to be an artist. Yes, I was very disillusioned by Hollywood, but actually when I healed from living in Los Angeles and came back to being an artist. This was, you know, when I was living in England. So I eventually managed to stop being the general manager of the jam factory, even though I loved it. I didn't want to be working 80 hours a week with angry chefs and, you know, sort of like the restaurant industry is hard. So I had gained all of the tools to develop a freelance entrepreneurial life pretty much, right? Like I was like, I, I got the opportunity to direct a show up in Edinburgh uh, for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and I'd still been doing improv throughout this I got involved in a troupe so I'd been doing a lot of theater stuff on the side and I decided to quit my job I didn't think I was going to be in England for much longer so there wasn't much of a risk so I decided to quit my job direct this show and then you know maybe just babysit and dog walk until we left England and moved back to the states after which point we had no idea where we were going So I directed the show up in England, it was amazing, or or up in Edinburgh, had a great time, came back to Oxford, managed to get a nanny job that sustained me while I did more theatre work. And then I did more theatre work and more theatre work and more theatre work, and then I started, or I co-founded an organisation called the Oxfordshire Theatre Makers. Oxfordshire Theatre Makers were like-minded people in my community who wanted to develop a sustainable career as a theatre artist and a theatre maker. So, we started a membership based organization. And, th- and the membership kind of came in later. Like, at first, it was just like a bunch of people getting together at a pub, having a beer, talking about how we support ourselves. That grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And, grew, and now it still exists and is thriving. People, wow. pay, people pay membership dues, they have real power when it comes to sort of like the Arts Council in England people are sustained in their community because they got together and said, how do we create opportunity for ourselves? And that I think was one of the most valuable things I learned from being in Oxford is that you can create the career you want, but you need a community of people Around you doing the same thing, and that doesn't just have to be that is so important
0: for everybody, no matter what you
1: do. Yeah, you can create the career you want, but you have to have a community. Absolutely, so
0: important. Thank you for saying that.
1: Love it. Oh, so it's funny because right before we did this, I listened to a pod or a podcast that I had recorded with the Oxfordshire Theater Makers, and it's the only other podcast I've ever recorded. And I listened, it came out today and I listened to it right before this, but it was all about how I took my skills that I learned and developed through the development of the Oxfordshire Theater Makers. And when I moved to, so I moved to Boston for like a hot second and we were trying to figure out what we're going to do with our lives. And then my husband got a job out here, but we weren't from here. I, I knew nothing about Syracuse. So I was like, okay, let's go. Let's see how it is. For me, I was like, I can create my career anywhere because I know how to develop community. And I was like, I just need to make sure there's opportunity, right? There's possibility, there's potential. And you walk around the streets of Syracuse. And so we walked around Syracuse. Well, okay, so here's how it goes. I said I had veto power over my husband's job opportunities, right? Because if he got a job somewhere (laughs) and there was no possibility for me to create a career as a theater artist, and we can't move there because yeah. that would mean I'd have to jeopardize what I want to do. Yep. So I wasn't about to do that. I no, had just figured I... out what I wanted to do with my life. You exactly.
0: Know? And it's such an important balance to have in a relationship, especially when you're trying to support the other person's passion and dreams. You need to be supported as
1: well. So we were, you know, on the verge of like opening a new chapter, we're, you know, we were like, okay, well, you got your PhD, you finished what's, what's next in our life. And so we moved to Boston just because we were like, why not? We, you know, I had done New York. We, he had done LA for a long time. We didn't want to go back to either of those places. So we just tried Boston because it was near to my family. And I grew up sort of near Boston, right? I, I mean, I sort of grew up you know, for, from fourth grade through high school, just north of Boston. So yeah, we gave it a try. It was lovely. We had a wonderful time in Boston. And then Nick got a job out here. So we moved. But the veto power thing is funny because on his last job interview at Colgate University, which is where he works now, I came out with him because it was an in-person interview. I came out with him. Uh, we stayed in the hotel out in Hamilton. So it's about an hour away from Syracuse. And I drove up to Syracuse in the middle of the winter. Okay, that was brave. Thank you. <laughs> and I knocked on doors unannounced. And I said, I want to be an artist. I want to be a theater artist. Should I move here? Um, And I went to the Red House and I spoke with now executive director Samara, who said, absolutely, like, this is a great place for theater artists to live and we'd love to work with you. You know, uh, it would would be wonderful. And then I uh, went to Syracuse Stage and I uh, spoke to some of the people there. And it was actually Samara uh, who said I should go over to CNY Arts. And it was really Liz Lane and Matthew DeBellis over at CNY Arts who sat down with me, completely unannounced, right? Like I walked into their office and I was like, hey, I'm thinking about moving here. And should I? And they sat down with me and they said, here are all of the resources in this community. Like, community. Here are all of the theaters. Here are the professional theaters. Here are the community theaters. And they told me a very important thing. They said, there's a lot of stuff going on, but there's not very, no one's like organizing anything central, there's no casting like thing locally. There's, there's no like network of like, like artists trying to like build professional careers. Mm-hmm. There's like nothing like that. Um, and also like, honestly, like, a lot of the arts organizations here have a focus on the art that they create, have a focus on the audience that sees the art, but they do not have a focus on the independent local artist. And because of that, there aren't any opportunities or there aren't many opportunities for local artists to create sustainable careers. So I identified that problem pretty early on. Moving here as an independent artist to create this career, I was like, okay, I've got this problem and I want to create this career. So I've got the challenge of not only creating a sustainable career, but changing an entire regional industry to value the local artist enough so that I can create a career. So that's why I started Breadcrumbs with the mission Breadcrumbs Productions. Now it's in its third year. It's a nonprofit uh, theater company, and its mission is to create risk-taking theater and to support the sustainability and development of local theater artists. It's got six active associate producers, a board of five people. It's growing, and it's growing fast.
0: That's Um, really fast, yeah. Yeah. It's awesome.
1: It's doing quite well. I mean, we just had, I think, gross receipts of under $30,000 in our third year, And, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, So, and, you know, we're able to pay artists above union wage uh, on occasion for projects. You know, we always, always prioritize paying artists over fancy sets or fancy costumes or good lights or good marketing even. Like, paying artists is the number one most important thing because for us... If we can create more opportunities for local artists to create sustainable careers, it means, hopefully, Syracuse will be able to keep artists. And if we can keep artists, maybe we can start attracting artists. Attracting artists, yes. So that's what I also want to do with queer people. I want to create enough opportunity for queer people to have rich, deep, Culture in our, our community to have various things to do. Because actually, you mentioned there are other like gay bars in our region or in, in, our, in our city. And I think we should be proud of those bars. Like, yes, they, they're not a ton of varied things to do, but they do amazing things, actually. I'll, I'll just give an example Wolf's Den has an incredible brunch right? Mm -hmm. Like their brunch is insane. They're known for their brunch, yes. It is so good. And I didn't go there for like a year and then suddenly I I went to because I was like, oh, well, it's kind of not my scene. It's like an older crowd. It's not really for me. You know, and, and it's
0: not the most, you know, I'll say this, I think it, it's not in the most attractive location where you wouldn't think that's where
1: that where the bar would be. And so it sometimes turns people away from going there. Of course. But we have to also count the number of resources we have in our community, in our community. Yep. for the people who, who exist here. So this is the other thing. It's like we have to be like, look, this bar might not be for me or this play might not be for me or this dance production or this exhibit or this whatever but I care about culture in my community. I care about these businesses existing in my community because there's something that we all innately believe in as, well, hmm, I wish we all innately believed in, which is something I call the cultural economy. It's yeah. not just how much money is in our city and our government, but it's, it's how, how deep and rich our culture is.
0: I think, I think people do believe in it and I think people are seeing the shift of what is happening in our community and how it's growing and how it's morphing and we're attracting people who aren't originally from here to come here to live here to start families and plant some seeds and you know get those roots in and it's changing it's growing tremendously I mean we're getting Amazon in our backyard that is insane to think about how how much has changed in a very short period of time
1: there is one thing that I have lived my life by. And if I really think about it, like this sort of like M.O. and it's not the sort of like Gandhi fading quote from my shoes... It's an improv thing because improv has really been the constant in my life. I've kind of grown away from improv now as an artist. I, I now do a lot of devised theater and a lot of immersive theater and a lot of weird theater. I like weird stuff. <laughs> but I have trained as an improv artist since I was about 14 years old. And I'm now 36, so <laughs> that's a long time. And I've taught all over the world. You've mastered really, it. improv. Yeah, mastered improv. That's not really a thing. Um, but it's funny <laughs> because it's, it's sort of a career that people really laugh about, which I get. I understand why that's funny. It in itself is funny career. But the number one rule of improv is yes and, right? It's say yes to what is presented into the world or your scene or whatever, and then add to it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that has been the number one thing that I have always said. I I I never really had career. It's your motto. It's my motto, exactly. It's your motto. I love that. That's so good. Yes and it's agree to to the world. Say, hey, that's an opportunity. And I'll meet you halfway, right? The, like people say like, oh, the door is open. You've got to walk through it, right? The, the open door is the yes. Like acknowledging that open door exists is the yes. You walking through it is the and. Hmm. So always keep an open mind to everything that's going to be coming towards you. because I, don't, I never had career goals because I never knew the way the world was going to unfold for me. Wow. So instead, I just said, agree to the world, and I want to have an interesting life, and I want to care about what I do. That taught me that I cared about my community. That, that taught me that I cared about my identity as a queer person. And then eventually I learned that I cared about the art I created. This is when I was living in Oxford, and I was able to create a theater artist career when I left being you know, a, a, a general manager of a restaurant. And when I came here, I was like, okay, there is enough possibility. There is enough opportunity if you can work hard enough and figure it out. So I just need to create more opportunity for more people, create the community that will also be saying yes and so that we're all opening the same doors for each other. And we're all walking through these doors. So I I feel like because I just, I don't know, I I start talking and I go down a rabbit hole. No,
0: I love this. And so here's, I have one question, one last question for you. Okay. So what would you say to the person who is in our same age demographic that hasn't really quite found their true passion and calling? And maybe it is becoming an activist and maybe it is becoming um, a person involved in theater and the arts.
1: What would you say to them? I haven't answered this question that is really long, so I am gonna give you Reader's (laughs) Digest, okay? We, even before COVID-19, we are living in one of the biggest shifts in humanity, okay? And I'm, I'm not talking about, like, as, like, in, in the most, like, the past 100 years or 200 years. I'm talking about, like, when we transitioned from being hunter-gatherer society to becoming an agricultural society, we are in the middle of the next big human shift. I agree right? 100% with the yes, continue. Sorry. It all has to do with children. And it all has to do with, so when we were hunter gatherers, we couldn't have a lot of children because we like had to move around a lot. And, and there were like, the, the unit of family was very different. There were um, birthing mothers. There were, uh, like, this is also when we're seeing like um, queer identities not being a horrible thing right because they're like two spirit sort of like identity i am really skimming the surface of this but we get to a point where we'll we start settling the next episode yeah we get to a point where we start <laughs> settling on farms and children become very important because they have to farm the land so we have as many children as we can this is when organized religion takes over it's when the masturbation becomes wrong it's when homosexuality becomes wrong it's a waste of the seed because we need children now we are in an overpopulate. Uh, so now it's like way later, right? Mm-hmm. We still consider ourselves an agricultural society much, much later. Now we're, we're now a capital, capitalist society and like all of this, like different economies have come in in various ways, but now we have an overpopulation world, right? We don't need more children to work on farms. We have machines to do that. Gay marriage is, uh, commonplace. Now divorce is commonplace. The, the, the family unit is changing and has been changing for a long time. Then we get the internet. Fast forward. Everything is now sped forward. So the when we used to sit and look at a pulpit to get our information, now we look at the computer and that's our pulpit. So yes, religion, of course, still exists. It's very important. But now there's a different kind of dissemination of information that we all have access to in different ways. Of course, privilege and class and all of this has a role in it. But what I'm saying is that we have been in the middle of a massive shift. Hmm. So here is the answer. The long-winded answer (laughs) to your question is that everyone's path is unique and free advice is worth what you pay for it, right? Everyone... No one can do anything by set paths anymore. Unfortunately, as a gay man at the age of 36, I can't really rely on the generation of gay men before me to tell me what it's like to be a gay man because they hold the baggage of the AIDS um, epidemic. Mm -hmm. That is a horrible thing. That is a horrible thing that I will thankfully, I mean, who knows? I mean, now it's COVID, right? But that I do not know what it's like to live through that. So I have to forge my identity. I can learn from them. I can, I can of course, like, empathize or sympathize and, and try to learn as much as I can. But our identity has shifted again. Mm-hmm. We are in the middle of constant shifting identities. So what I want to say is, if you feel like you are a weirdo, good. We're all weirdos. Yes. Right? We're all doing our own thing. And the world is going to unfold in strange and weird ways. And no matter, no matter what you do to plan for it, Unexpected pianos are going to fall out of the sky and you are going to have to choose as to whether or not you say yes and you walk through that door, metaphor, river, mountain, piano, whatever you want to call it and take that opportunity. That's so amazing. I love it. Thanks. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to say it because I um, am equally thrilled and terrified about the time that we live in.
0: I think we all are. I think that there's a lot of uncertainty that people are finding themselves in. And there's all these words that we keep using that are common theme. We're all in this together. But I think everyone, yes, we're in it together because we're experiencing it at the same time, but our experience is different. Yes. And and having conversations like this is what helps some people that may not have a voice or are too scared to speak or can just simply relate and say oh my god i agree with that that's so true i want to be part of that how can i learn more about this so that's exactly what i wanted this to be and i'm so grateful and appreciative that you were able to join me today and i would love to have you again because i think oh, we, we just we barely pulled back one layer
1: i know so, this is so deep it's kind of why i felt so nervous i was like how deep no do we go? no it's a conversation yes yeah. yes i appreciate the conversation thank you for having me
0: Thank you so much. And to everyone who's listening, more information on the show notes. We're going to include all those juicy details you were talking about. (laughs)